who's been enjoying the book of Mark. Unfortunately, it's coming to an end. But we're not quite there yet. So we're going to read from the last part of chapter 15 this morning. I'm going to ask Barry Wood if he'll come up and uh, read that for us this morning. Give Barry a hand as he comes up. Come on. He is a rock star after all. I expect a score out of 10 then. <laughs> All right. So Mark 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lima Sabachthani. <laughs> That's what I wanted. Thank you. All right. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it to him on a, re on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, Let, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him, saw how he had died. He exclaimed, this man was truly the son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. That didn't make any sense, did it? And Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. This also happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to, Pilat uh, to Pilate. <laughs> That's been around a long time. Went <laughs> and went to, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was, honored, was an honoured member of the High Council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't... <laughs> couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead so he called from the Roman officer called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet the officer confirmed that Jesus was dead so so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth then he took Jesus body down from the cross wrapped it in the cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Now, there is an inherent danger in asking people to do Bible readings because there's this danger that they may actually steal your thunder. <laughs> now... There's an interesting passage there. Uh, actually, I mean, you, you get something out of Scripture every time you read it. I had no idea that Pilates had been around <laughs> since the time of Jesus. I mean, my mind is blown. Uh, but the interesting thing about the, the chapter, if you, if you think about it when, while Barry was reading it, that as soon as Jesus dies, as soon as he gives that shout, the focus switches from Jesus on the cross to the people around him. There's almost like a, a cut-off, like Jesus no longer matters. Mark has 
indicated that he's died, and that's important, but then suddenly he's off on a totally another tack. And the emphasis switches immediately from what would Jesus do to what would the people around him do. And so the first thing we've got to recognize about why this is important is the manner of Jesus' death. Jesus gave his life. He didn't have it taken from him. We know this because, although you probably don't really want to know the details of how crucifixion worked, uh, people usually died of exhaustion on the cross. Uh, They hung there for two or three days. Uh, To breathe, you have to lift yourself up because the muscles in your chest are constricted when you're hanging. So you have to... Once you can't do that, you lapse into a coma and you usually die after three or four days um, while you're unconscious and just hanging there. Now, Jesus had only been there a few hours. Um, He was fully conscious to the end and he gave up his life. Now, that's why Pilate was surprised because he said to the officer, hey, what's going on? Just confirm for me that Jesus is really dead. Because Jesus actually voluntarily gave up his spirit. So that's the important thing we need to recognize, that Jesus gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. So Jesus just didn't didn't just die on purpose. His death had a purpose. And it's reflected in that question, and I won't try and pronounce the Aramaic. My God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? Because it's not just a bewildered cry of a suffering victim. It's actually an acknowledgement of two things. The first is that Almighty God was not just his Father, but his God. It's actually the first of Jesus' recorded prayer where he doesn't use the term Abba or Dad. Usually when Jesus prayed to the Father, he started off with, Hey Dad, here I am. But here he says, My God, my God. And so he's, he's actually there acknowledging the fact that he was obeying his God. He wasn't just doing what Dad wanted. He was acknowledging that God was God the Father. He was the Son of God. And recognizing that he had to be abandoned. And the reason he used my God was that the abandonment wasn't a father and son abandonment. It was actually a legal abandonment. God the Father cannot be in the presence of sin Jesus, the son, was about to take on every single sin that had ever happened in the whole world. And so legally, God had to say, look, that's it. And Jesus, in that cry, acknowledges, my God, my God, this is horrible. But it has to happen legally for me to get to be the saviour of the earth. See what I did there? Anyway. So his substitute enabled What happens in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where it says, Don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. The only reason God could say that was he actually abandoned his son Jesus on the cross in order that we could say that our God is never going to abandon us or fail us. So you can see this, this has turned from a nice story into a piece of legal process that has had to go on in heaven. And so Mark records five phenomena that accompany Jesus' death that are important in this transaction that's going on. The first one is the darkness. 
Mark 15.33 says, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. That doesn't normally happen during the day. Have you noticed that? It's usually fairly bright. In fact, that's what the time they say UV, record, UV readings are highest. You wear a hat or sunscreen when you go out in the sun. And so the darkness actually indicates the, the position that Israel now finds itself in because they've murdered their king. They are in a state of darkness that only Jesus can get them out of. And so that, that was a warning, if you like, to the Jews. Mark 15.37 says, Jesus uttered another loud cry, breathed his last, which indicates the purposefulness of his death. And as soon as he uttered that cry, the next phenomenon was triggered by his very words. And that was in verse 38. The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, has anybody got a picture of what the temple looked like? It was big. I mean, this, this hall is nowhere near big enough to encapsulate any of it. The ceiling, the, t the actual curtain was five, seven, eight metres high and it was made in several parts. There was a, a, a thin bit, there was a really thick bit um, and it was soundproofed and, and to get through the curtain required quite a, a, an effort to get through and only the priests once a year went into the holies of Hol Holy of Holies through that curtain. So it was massive, strong and very high. And interestingly, it was torn from top to bottom. There weren't any giants around at the time. So we know that no human being did it. If a human had to do it and they were strong enough, they'd have had to have ripped it from the bottom to the top. But we know that God did it because he ripped it from the top to the bottom. It was a supernatural tearing of the curtain. And it was symbolic because it meant that mankind, you and me, we had now access to God directly. We didn't have to go through a priest who went into a holy place to talk to God on our behalf. So we can see that's a reasonably important thing to happen. And the last thing was that in verse 39 it says, When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. So his confession opened the way for God's true nature to be revealed to people. He was the first person there who actually saw evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. And interestingly, I mean, he was Jesus' executioner. He was a non-believer. He was there to make sure Jesus was dead. He had no affiliation. In fact, he was probably an enemy, if you like, of Jesus. And yet, in watching his death, his death the first words out of his mouth were, this man was the Son of God. Interestingly, Mark's gospel opens with those same words. This is the story of the Son of God. Now, whether or not he understands the meaning of his words, the important thing is a representative of the Roman Empire has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And Mark is writing his gospel to the Romans. And so this is an important part of Mark's gospel to let people know that Roman, Jew, Syrian, um, Gaul, Spaniard, whatever nationality you, nationalities were around at the time, doesn't matter. Anybody can accept the gift of salvation from Jesus. And of course, many Romans followed his example as, the, as the, uh, the good news spread. So what did people do? There were three distinct groups of people. Don't you find it interesting that speakers always manage to find either three or seven 
or, or ten points to make in a, in a message. But there were three groups of people. There was John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and the other Mary, the one who was the, was the mother of James the Younger. Um, we, we do the same thing here. We have people we call, there's little John and um, there's Ashley and Ashley, there's little Ashley and big Ashley. Um, we, we separate names out like that, so it perhaps wasn't that strange. Um, there was the centurion and the thief. They were the second group of people. And the third group, and I know these are only small groups, um, but Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus form the third group. So let's have a look at the first group. Mark mentions the name of some devout disciples, none of whom were, keep, were keeping watch. No, who were keeping watch. And interestingly, aside from John, none of them are from the twelve. Mark 15.40 says, Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. Um, they had been followers of Jesus, had cared for him while he was in Galilee, and many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. The disciples had all fled, apart from John, whom Jesus ordered to take his mother away and look after her. And so the only disciples left were these women, who were actually doing the discipleship thing. They were watching and they were praying. It's an interesting point to make that these people were there. Um, Mary Magdalene had been healed by Jesus. Salome was actually Jesus' aunt. And Mary, who wasn't his mother Mary, was the, was the uh, mother of two of the other disciples. And so they had two reasons for being present. One, of course, was intimate because they'd known Jesus. But the other one was because how Jesus had treated them. We're looking at a world here where women were second-class citizens, where they weren't treated as equals. Glad that was a long time ago, aren't you? Okay, I won't go any further with that one. Um, because, see, Jesus... In his ministry, afforded all womanhood a dignity that they'd never known previously. And so they're here not just because they knew Jesus, because they represented a new attitude that Jesus had actually uh, started. Um, they also appear at the resurrection, and their appearance there indicates that people who, who, even if you see Jesus from a distance, you can actually be involved and accept the salvation that, and the good news that he has to offer. Um, and Mark, of course, again writing to the Romans, probably meant this as an encouragement uh, to faithful discipleship among the women in the church at Rome. Now the second group of people, one of whom isn't mentioned in Mark, is the thief on the cross next to Jesus and the Roman officer. And we see in Mark 39 how the, the Roman officer exclaimed, the man truly was the Son of God. But in the Gospel of Luke, in verse 23, uh, in verse, chapter 23, verse 42, the thief next to Jesus says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So even amongst the, and amidst the horror and the hopelessness of the crucifixion, 
Both of these people were actually able to see Jesus for who he was and accept his offer of salvation. In fact, the thief offered it, got it in advance. He, he got sort of like a, a pre-booked ticket because Jesus hadn't died yet. But he, it's, it's like, you know, he, here's yours in advance. When I die, that, you can cash that in. <laughs> so even though things looked so bad, there were still people whose faith was enough to reach out to Jesus and ask for salvation. The third group were the secret, the secret admirers, I call them, the secret disciples. Verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honoured member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. You sort of think, now, why does it say Joseph took a risk and asked Pilate for the body? I mean, Pilate didn't want the body anymore. Why, why was it a risk for him to actually take the body? And although it's not mentioned in Mark's gospel, in the other gospels it talks about the fact that Nicodemus, who remembers Nicodemus? He, he appeared earlier and asked Jesus that famous question of how can a man be born again? Um, and Jesus, of course, responded to that. Nicodemus came and helped him. And you sort of think, why, why did they do that? Who, who were these people? What was their affiliation? Because we know that Joseph himself was a Pharisee. But they, they were what I would call secret disciples of Jesus. And there are lots of people around who are, who are secret disciples of Jesus. They, they, they think the whole idea of, of Jesus is, is the right way to go. But they're afraid of the attitude of the times, the community they're in, to actually step out and state that because they don't know what will happen to them. And Joseph and Nicodemus were a bit like that. But, so Joseph has suddenly taken a step of faith which actually brings him into a, an area of great risk. See, because asking the, the question, can I have Jesus' body, was odd because he wasn't related to Jesus. And normally only the family asks for the body of the deceased. His request was likely to be denied on principle because Jesus was executed for treason. And they usually made an example of those bodies and didn't give them back to the family. The Jewish leaders would have cast him out because he would have handled a dead body on the Sabbath and defiled himself. Now, that sounds a bit petty to us, but back then, that, that was a huge deal. So he was opening himself up to being thrown out of the Jewish faith. And of course, the last thing is, his request for the body basically amounted to an open confession that he associated with Jesus. And so he was a secret disciple. He'd, he'd come out as a Christian. He'd come out as a follower of Jesus and sort of said, hang it, doesn't matter what the consequences are, I'm following Jesus Christ. Nicodemus had done the same thing. He, he followed in Joseph's footsteps and there was no hiding the fact anymore that they were disciples of Jesus Christ. So with these three groups of people, we can see that even at the lowest point of Jesus' ministry, the fact that he was no longer there, there was no Messiah to follow. Everybody was scattered. There was no church. So far, there was no resurrection. We're looking at the lowest of the low. And yet for these three groups of people, we can see that there are people who have maintained their faith 
through all of this. There are some people who have increased their faith. Joseph and, and Nicodemus had to take a step of, of an increase in faith to actually take the action that they did to bury Jesus. And then there are the people who have actually just received faith in this time. We live in a time post-resurrection. We know that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. We know that the promises of God have come to pass, that we have salvation if we ask for it. And we need to ask ourselves, in the times that we live in, are we maintaining our faith? Dare I ask, are we increasing our faith? Or are we in a place where we need to step up and just receive faith? Because if it, it can happen in those times, when Jesus wasn't around, between death and resurrection, then we need to look out and think, why isn't it happening more in our times? This is a time when we should actually forget about the problems in life, grab hold of the promise that Jesus has given us, and run with it. We need to be at least maintaining our faith, being a person that somebody can look at and say, they are rock solid. Their faith has not shifted. They've been through terrible things. They've, they've been battered from left and right, but they're still keeping on a true path and they haven't, they haven't lost their faith. And then some of us, we need, we need to set fire to what's just glowing within us and be the people that, look, that people see and look, wow, they are on fire. What has changed in them? They have grabbed hold of this and I want to follow them. I want to see what's in their life. We need to be aiming for that because only then will we see people against all the odds because I don't know about you, but I can remember how I got saved. And when I look back on how I got, I got saved, I'm very tempted to think sometimes, why would anybody do that? I mean, I'm not even sure why I did it. It just seemed to happen at the time. Sometimes you think, well, I was perhaps a special case and I, I don't think my story would affect anybody. And I, I'm not going to tell anybody that because it doesn't have any power or any impact because anybody ever sort of felt that their salvation story was perhaps a bit weak? I mean, God didn't appear to me. I didn't have a revelation. I wasn't cured of an addiction instantly or anything exciting like that. I didn't... It, it was... It was a, a slow process of realising that Jesus was the Lord of my life and I need to, needed to acknowledge that. Even surprised my, surprised my wife. We were there at the morning service and I put my hand up and she said, you didn't tell me you were going to do that. Now we've got to come back in the evening so that I can do it. So it was, And so we get afraid of the fact that we live in a situation where if we talk to people about Jesus, they're, they're going to laugh at us. They're going to say, well, no, Jesus is irrelevant. The Christian faith isn't, isn't relevant in, in, these, in these times. And we let fear hold us back. Jesus wasn't just irrelevant, he was dead. We, we have no excuse because we can show people that Jesus is alive. And we do not know what is going on in people's heads and in people's hearts. There are people out there that we think would, would laugh in our face who are desperate to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There are people there who we think are haters of our faith who just need to have it explained to them to get a revelation on their heart that they're, that they're above hate. 
They're more, far more worthwhile than they or we would give them credit for. We just need the courage to step out and find these people. I mean, I can still remember Ben and Brendan when they were young boys. Long, no, not so long ago now. And I, I remember Ben saying that he wanted to invite Brendan to youth, but he wasn't sure what Brendan would think about that, and he didn't want to spoil their friendship. And he came home really upset one day because Brendan had invited him to his youth group. <laughs> and far from being somebody that, that Ben should have been nervous about talking about his, his relationship with Jesus, well, Brendan was there being nervous about the same thing, but he stepped out first. And so then there was the tussle of the youth groups, and we won. <laughs> um, but it's just an example there of how our preconceived ideas of what people are thinking, what people believe, what people need in their lives, is often wrong. It's not that we need to go and beat people over the heads with our Bibles, but we actually need to beat people over their, their heads with our kindness, our concern, our support. And... It, <laughs> When I say beat people over the head, I'm trying to say the reverse of that. We just need to show them the real us and not, uh, and not force uh, something upon, or at least not have them feel that we're forcing something upon them. So we need to at least maintain our faith. But I believe God is helping us if we'll just take, take his hand and follow him to increase our faith. And we're going to see people who accept faith in gr greater and greater numbers in these times because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Let's stand. I want to pray for people this morning, but I'm going to, I, want, I want you to stay in your seats. But I want you to acknowledge something. I want everybody to, to close their eyes. And I just want to ask you, if you're there, standing there, and you're thinking, I really struggle with sharing my faith. In fact, sometimes I struggle with my faith. I, I just want to get to that point where I'm one of those person. Persons, people, that people can look at and say, his faith, her faith is strong, unwavering. You'd just like him to get to that point. Well, nobody's looking around. Just, just raise your hand because I, I want to pray with you guys. And if you're there and you feel that your faith is strong, maintained, you've been a faithful person, but you want to be in that place where you can put your hands down. If you, but if you want to be in that place where your faith is on the rise, your faith is actually moving forward, you want to move beyond that, that stationary place where you're sure in your faith to that risky place where you're having faith for things that are scary. If that's you this morning, I want you to put your hands up. Down again. And I want to pray for you as well. But if you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, of saying, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid to declare it publicly. I am not a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to be a full-blown public disciple of Jesus Christ. And you've never said, Jesus, come into my life. I want to be acknowledged as a son and daughter of God. I want to pray with you this morning. 
to invite Jesus into your life to start that journey of faith. And if that's you, while people's eyes are closed, their heads are bowed, would you raise your hand? And I'd love to pray with you as well. Okay. Open your eyes. Get your prayer machinery ready. It's your voice, by the way. Because I want us all just to start praying. Just to start lifting up the name of God. You can pray in your own language or you can pray in uh, tongues. You can, you can pray however you like. Just start, just start honouring the name of God. Let's just start building up His name in this place. Let's acknowledge His Spirit here this morning. Holy God. We give you thanks for your presence. You are holy. You are worthy. You are great in this place. Lord, holy God. Mighty, wonderful, glorious God. Send your spirit into our hearts today. Encourage us. Bring life. Holy God. Holy God. Keep praying. Lord, I pray right now for those people who feel their faith is weak, for people who need encouragement to build themselves up on the inside, the people who need to know that you are with them every second of every day, that you love them, that you care for them, that you have their best interests at heart, that you believe that they are strong. Lord, I pray right now that their faith rises to a level where they can stay, stay in your word, stay in your presence, believe that your power is working in their life, that they are secure and firm in your love, that they are safe in the knowledge that they are a child of God, that you will never leave them or forsake them. And I thank you, Lord, that their faith will be visible for all to see. They will shine like a beacon. And Lord, I pray for those people who believe that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, that they want to move from a place of just being safe in faith to a place of the unknown, a place where their faith is reaching into areas that they haven't been before, they haven't considered before. Whether they're taking a step of faith in their job, whether they're taking a step of faith in relationships, taking a step of faith in, in, in their prayer life, in their Bible reading and getting closer to you, Lord, I just pray right now, that your spirit is building a fire inside of them to take them to places they cannot see, they sometimes cannot even conceive right now, but that they have the confidence that you are with them there, that the fire inside of them is going to go into overdrive. People are going to be blown away and amazed by what they see, and they are going to bring a huge harvest into this house. In Jesus' mighty name. And this morning, if you're a secret disciple, if your name's Joseph or Nicodemus, I just want to pray right now that the Spirit of God falls on you and that you have the courage in the coming days to stand up and say, I want to be a public disciple of Jesus. I'm going to take steps to show not just Almighty God, but the people around me that I have changed my compass. My direction is set. I am following my God. 
If you'd just like to take your seats, amen, by the way. You know you don't actually always have to say amen to finish a prayer? <laughs> Brendan pointed out that if you don't do that, God might think everything you say is a prayer. Who thinks that's a good thing? Who's a bit worried about what God might hear? <laughs> There's perhaps something to do for the next week. Never say amen and just watch what you say all the time so that God thinks it's a prayer. <laughs> 